It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 1st of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. They were playing on the street, cycling to the shop, walking down the road, driving into work, en route to the Debs, making their way to the celebrations after getting their exam results. Little did they know that when they set out on their journeys, their families' lives would change forevermore. Their lives would end. So far this year, 125 people have lost their lives on Irish roads. That's up 24 on the same time last year. 39 more deaths, in fact, than was uh, the case in 2019. Families are mourning the loss of loved ones. This year alone, almost 40 young people under the age of 25 have died. It's tragic and it's always, or almost always, unnecessary. Martin Kenny is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport. And a very good morning to you, Martin, and thank you indeed morning, for joining us on the programme. It's been very hard to listen to the news or read the papers over the last couple of, of weeks uh, because uh, this is something that we're not used to on this scale, although it's not that long ago when we had road deaths uh, on this scale. It's like we're going backwards, though. It's as if we're going back to the 1990s uh, when we were regularly reporting on people losing their lives on the roads. Why do you think that is the case? Look, I suppose there's a number of reasons for it, but first of all, I think uh, there was another tragic incident in Dublin last night where there was a man killed with a bus. You know, and a lot of these deaths, as you say, are avoidable and unnecessary and shouldn't happen. And, you know, what we need to do is, is, is look at the overall situation. We need, I suppose, safer vehicles, safer roads. Um, you know, speed is, is one of the big issues, all the data tells us. Uh, also, the road conditions is also a, a serious issue in many cases. Um, the solution to it, you know, is, is not one solution. There's no, there's no silver bullet here. It's, it's a whole range of things that need to be done. Uh, I, I think one of the issues that have been talked about is reducing speed limits in certain areas. And certainly I think that on the motorways we should see a reduction in speed limits where there will be variable. We see that in other countries where if, if road conditions disimprove, if you have very heavy rain or something, the, the speed limit signs come up and say speed, speed has been reduced and you must reduce your speed. But all of that, of course, also requires proper enforcement. And that's an issue as well that we don't, we, we, you know, we, we all travel the road and see people flying at, 
maybe even sometimes twice the speed limit, overtaking traffic dangerously, doing all these things. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think it's the person that's doing, you know, 84 kilometres in an 80 zone that's the problem. It's the person that flies past six or eight trucks and, 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 and cars in a row and takes really dangerous chances. Yeah. That's that's really where, where a lot of this happens. And we used um, to see that all of the time in the 1990s. I, I think our habits improved an awful yeah, lot for a number of reasons. Uh, we went from miles to kilometres and that adjusted a lot of the speed limits in the country. But there was also a, a huge educational programme driven by the Road Safety Authority, yeah. which lasted for years, not just in terms of advertising and campaigns, because there was plenty of them, uh, but there was also lots of media appearances. That appears to have changed uh, since Eamon Ryan became the Minister of Transport, or is that a misperception? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'd have to see data on that, whether it has or not, in fairness, Eamon Ryan. I, I wouldn't accuse him of, of, of reducing the awareness programmes. I, I, I wouldn't be aware of that, but um, I, I agree with you. You know, We don't seem to be as, as conscious of it as as we were before, but certainly, you know, the events of the past couple of months really now has brought it home to everybody, the huge tragedy and loss of life and huge injuries and, you know, trauma that many families have suffered has been has been absolutely detrimental. Mm. Uh, but but I, I think, you know, it's, it's about speed, it's about awareness, it's about all of those things. That's also about the roads themselves. You know, a lot of these accidents don't happen on the motorways. They happen on local roads, on uh, national routes, routes that the county councils have responsibility for in many cases. And I know every year, I'm sure it's the same across the country, local authorities apply for funding from the department for to get uh, road safety measures put in place. It may be a series of bends on a road or a dangerous junction or whatever. And always they have a list of road safety measures that need to be done and are urgent, but they only get funded for a small number of them. Mm. And I think that that would make a big difference as well if we could improve those particular black spots, those particular areas where we continuously have accidents. Because nearly every time you'll notice, Michael, when there is uh, a death or a tragedy, the the news reports tell us there was another tragedy here so many years ago or there were so many more accidents in the past on that particular spot or that particular stretch of road. So I think, you know, there needs to be an emphasis on that, on putting the investment in place to ensure that we can get the roads up to the standard that they need to be at to keep people safe as well. Mm. Uh, Because uh, it uh, often is the road conditions uh, uh, over speed because the fastest roads in the country uh, the motorways uh, are the safest roads, not just in, in this country, but that's the experience right across the world, isn't it? It is indeed. It is indeed. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the quieter roads, the road where somebody doesn't expect to meet anyone, almost, uh, and they do. Mm. And it's the chance that people take a hundred times and nothing goes wrong, and then once it does, and something goes wrong and it can have a, a tragic impact. There's the question, but, uh, though, is it not? Why do people not expect to meet somebody? Uh, it is a question of driver responsibility. You'd uh, imagine that if you were a trained driver, an experienced driver, uh, and uh, you took on your own driver responsibility, you'd be expecting to meet somebody. So there's something missing there if people aren't expecting to meet somebody. Well, that's right. And, and I think, you know, we, we, we could look at all of that at, at, at more perhaps training and awareness and ensuring that people when they're particularly young people when they're doing their test because you know we, we there's issues about the, the time delays and all that and young people trying to get licenses and needing to drive but very often the test the test as you know is, is done really in the towns at a slow pace how to navigate roundabouts and junctions and all of that but these accidents and the very bad serious accidents happen on the open road on the straight stretches of road where the person is doing uh, the speed 
probably using the speed limit as a speed target or, or well above it. Mm. And uh, I think I think there needs to be more awareness of that for younger drivers in particular, because we see an awful lot of these tragedies. Unfortunately, it's very young people that are being killed. Speed, obviously, is a huge factor, no matter what you say, because if you hit a, a wall at five miles an hour, um, you're probably going to be very annoyed because your bumper has been destroyed. But if you hit the wall at 60 miles an hour, 60 kilometres an hour, uh, perhaps your family will be arranging your funeral. That's right, that's right. Yeah, of course. Speed is the speed is the big the big issue here, and and you know responsibility for the road the road user is responsible and has to be responsible when they're driving, uh, and we have to do everything to make sure that they are aware of that. And at the same time, you know, we also have to have safe roads. We also have to face safe speed limits. We also have to have uh, proper enforcement of speed limits, and indeed other issues. You know, the the numbers of people drink driving. You know, there's always issues around that, and indeed, the, I suppose it's it's somewhat newer, but it's still there. Yeah. Is people under the influence of drugs that are driving, and taking chances and not being as aware as they would otherwise be, and all of those factors yeah. come into it. And I, I think you know there needs to be uh, uh, a lot of cop on for a lot of people out there that you know this rush that people have to get spaces mm. sometimes can end up in tragedy both for themselves and for others and you know we need to take a breath and step back and, and recognize that you know we 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 can be late but you know, better be late than not be there at all and unfortunately mm. that's what happens with many people yeah, and there was an amazing statistic wasn't there um the last bank holiday weekend uh, with uh, the guardy arresting somebody every half hour for drink or drug driving as uh, the case may be you also hear uh, about some of uh, the national slowdown campaigns and the amount of people who are found driving above the speed limit uh, quite recklessly uh, at times. Uh, but are they isolated incidents where the Gardaí are proactively policing the roads to that extent? Do you believe that the roads are being policed to the extent that is necessary to control people? Well, look, I, I think we have had issues for a long time in the, the numbers of Gardaí and the pressure they're under and uh, the, the strains of the job. And, uh, you know, roads policing is, is a big issue. And, of course, it, it covers, it's multifaceted, you know. It's, uh, it doesn't just, if, if the guards are out on the roads and they're checking for speed and they're also checking for everything else, they'll see a stolen vehicle, mm. or they'll see other things if they're, if they're out there and they're on the job and on the beat doing that. And uh, I think, you know, we need to see more Gardaí out doing that. Yeah. But, of course, that means we need more Gardaí overall. And that's another issue about recruitment and retention and all of those things. Yeah. Uh, but re- really, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of this responsibility comes back to the individual driver and to make sure that they are responsible for what they're doing. Sometimes they and, don't have uh, the time to be responsible. Sometimes they're on their phone and given the amount of people I see and uh, that people tell me here at the radio station that they see uh, on their phones, you'd wonder if that's being policed at all. Uh, how many times have you been stopped at the traffic lights and the car in front of you doesn't move when the light goes green until eventually the driver lifts up their head. Uh, I drove uh, behind a, a car yesterday on the way home from the radio station just outside of here uh, and a, a car was driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, I just presumed that they were on their phone. Yeah. Yeah, or people, you know, when the phone beeps and there's a text message on it, you, you don't have to spend your whole attention reading that text message when you should be watching the road. And that's that's what people do often, you know, whatever is there will wait. Uh, but you know there there are there are issues around that. That's back to responsibility, back to enforcement, back to all of those things. Uh, but but I think we 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 need to we need to have um, a sense of the tragedy that all of this causes. I think that's that's really what what we need to get home to people. You know mm. that you know all the chances, all the the the, the fast driving, the 
checking the phone when you shouldn't be doing all of those things can result in very traumatic situations both for the driver and for the people in the car with them or for others that mm. may be using the road get there late Dan not at all as the case may be uh, Martin we'll leave there for the moment thank you very much Thanks indeed for joining us on the programme today Martin Kenny is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport if you'd like to make comment on the programme today let me remind you that we'd love to hear from you our telephone number is 041 983 you can text us or WhatsApp us 086 is the number for either and you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I'd like to read you a couple of letters if I can. One that comes to us from June Taylor in Drogheda. She says, Michael, I've been listening to your programme and the debate on rescinding the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey. What I don't understand is how a number of the councillors in Drogheda who are voting on this on Monday won't comment to you about the issue. Well, you're right, June. Uh, just to remind listeners, uh, there's four councillors who've taken that position. The Mayor, Eileen Tully of Fine Gael. Well, actually, I, I did speak to the Mayor the other day and she said, is it about the freedom of Drogheda? Uh, I got skint the last time I spoke about that. No comment, no comment, bye. Um, uh, James Byrne has uh, said no comment. That's a, a Fianna Fáil councillor, James Byrne. Kevin Callan, an independent councillor, no comment. And Declan Parr, an independent councillor who was given his seat by Kevin Callan, no comment. But anyway, let me go back to uh, June's email. She says, there could be valid reasons for politicians to withhold comments. There could be legal or security concerns or information that should be kept confidential. However, it is generally expected that politicians provide explanations, engage in open dialogue and address the concerns and questions of their constituents. After all, their job is to uphold the principles of democracy and accountability. When a politician says no comment, as a a number of the local councillors have said to LMFM, it raises some concerns for me. In a democratic system, transparency is essential for accountability. When politicians refuse to comment, it gives the impression that they are not being forthcoming or honest with the public. This really does not instill trust in the political process or the councillors involved. Politicians are accountable to us, their constituents. Refusing to comment looks to me like an attempt to avoid responsibility or accountability for their actions or decisions. Taking votes in secret is what might happen in North Korea. Saying no comment makes me wonder if these councillors are indifferent to what Damien and the victims of sexual abuse and rape are saying to them, or maybe they don't care, or perhaps not embarrassing their friends in Drogheda's upper echelons is more important to them. I don't know, but I want to hear from them. And when they say no comment, it leaves me particularly frustrated. It is simply not satisfactory. If that is, they are going to ask me to vote for them again. Public discourse and dialogue are vital in a democratic society. When politicians decline to comment, it can hinder meaningful discussion and debate on important issues. Our public figures... Uh, and their words and actions scrutinised. Saying no comment can result in a negative public perception about where their priorities lie.
Thank you indeed, uh, June Taylor, uh, for your email. Uh, now, I want to read a- another letter. Uh, this is not a- an email that came to us, but it's a-, a letter that's published in the Irish Independent today. It's from Patrick J. Matthews of Deep Ford, Drogheda, County Louth. And Patrick J. Matthews says that he wants to clarify a few points uh, about the Christian Brothers' freedom of Drogheda controversy. Congratulations to Philip Bryan on a balanced article in the Indo yesterday uh, on the proposal to take back the award. Uh, and he says, there are a few key points that I wish to make. First, many survivors of abuse have already engaged with the Christian Brothers Mediation Service and appropriate and fair compensation has already been paid to them. It is not necessary to go through the courts. Second, there are five members on the province leadership team of the Christian Brothers and they make decisions collectively. It is not down to one person. Brother Garvey, who is not accused of any wrongdoing, retired from the leadership team over a year ago. As I say, that's a letter published in the Irish Independent today. It's written by Patrick J. Matthews of Deepford, Drogheda in County Louth. Now, let's get some legal opinion on this because Philip Tracy is a solicitor with Coleman Legal in Dublin, a firm that represents victims of childhood sexual abuse. A very good morning to you, Philip, and thank you indeed for joining us. What do you make of what Patrick J. Matthews of Deepford in Drogheda is saying about how mediation has already happened and that fair amounts of compensation have been paid out to victims because I think you've said that if or when this happens that ultimately the victims end up agreeing to settle their cases for inadequate compensation sums. Explain that to us if you would. Good morning Michael and thank you for having me on the show again and indeed thank you to to yourself and to your team for this ongoing coverage of this extremely important matter. Just to address the issue that Mr Matthews has raised there uh, Michael, in our experience, the, the order as a whole, as a collective, is not agreeing to meet with any victims. What happens is, is that a, a claimant will commence a claim and then there may be a suggestion of, of a settled meeting or mediation. But the order, in relying on this tactic, okay, they will put forward one or two people only, members of the order, who will act strictly in their personal capacity only. <clears throat> so they're not representative of the entire body of the congregation, and they are not representative of the entire number of defendants that, because of this tactic, claimants who are victims of childhood sexual abuse have had to go through legal procedure for years at huge cost, huge stress, to join in on these proceedings. So it's not the case that it's the order as a whole who are offering to, to settle matters it's one or two people acting in their personal capacity only. Mm. And that leaves victims then. Let's say you have, we've a number of cases, one in particular that's covered in the media a lot, there's over 100 defendants. So on their terms, you're settling against one or two uh, members of the order in their personal capacity only. So what happens then is, okay, so you, you might settle against those one or two in their personal capacity only. What do you do with all the other defendants who you have to spend years joining to these proceedings at huge cost? The, the, the case against them still remains live. And you, as the, the victim then, the claimant, the injured party having suffered years of trauma, you're then left with another legal problem. Hmm. So it's not the case. So there are, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity just to clarify that. Indeed, if the councillors are listening in, because I know 
the, I think the, the, the order have made very little comment on this, but they're essentially saying it's legal, which it is, that's yeah. correct. And, and they've made the point of all about offering mediation. It's very important point from a legal, and I don't want to get bogged down in complexities and legal jargon, but on a very simple way, it's not as it seems. You're then left, as I said, if you settle against one or two people in their personal capacity only, you're then left with the problem of all the other 100-plus defendants that you have to join because they have relied on this tactic, which is really just exploiting a loophole in the law at the moment. And if I could just add one other thing, please, Michael, if you don't mind. If any unincorporated body chooses to nominate, to act on behalf of the entire congregation in defending a claim, that is not the same. It is not the same as admitting liability to the claim. That's an important point. So it's, it's not a defence tactic in that, you know, you and I would, would understand it. If mm. we're being pursued, we might put in a defence and say, well, we're not responsible because of reasons A, B and C. It's not that sort of a defence. It's just a tactic to delay, which puts claimants very much on the back foot. And, you know, have, carrying this you know, serious damage to them for the entirety of their lives, they reach a point in their lives they're actually capable of instructing a solicitor to seek justice for what has happened, for the ongoing daily trauma that they still carry with them, reflecting their, their working lives, their personal relationships, marriages, race with children, friends, family, everybody. This never goes away. Mm. They're then faced with this tactic. So it's just very important to make those two legal points. One is, in our experience, it's not the order as a whole who are offering to settle matters. And secondly, if they were to nominate, it doesn't prejudice them in any way. They okay. can still continue on and fully defend the case, as is their prerogative, and I have no problem with that as a lawyer myself. They're perfectly entitled to do it. What this does is severely delays. It puts claimants through huge amount of expense, stress that they do not need, obviously, when you think of their backgrounds. And, and uh, I would encourage the councillors listening, if they are listening to this, please stand by the victims of childhood sexual abuse. There's an opportunity for public representatives to say we stand hand in hand with these victims and please, to the Christian Brothers Order, do the right thing here. You can still defend all the claims you want. Let let me ask you another question because uh, there's an accusation being made against you and the legal profession and against Damien O'Farrell. The accusation against you that I've heard, uh, I, I no, I haven't heard much from Christian Brothers, and I don't know if this is coming from Christian Brothers, but it, it certainly is representing the case not to go to court and to mediate with the, the Christian Brothers. The accusation is that you're touting for business, that there's two legal strategies here, that you could go to the Christian Brothers and they'll settle your case with you out of court through mediation, or or you can go to the court and the um, uh, the award will be larger but that only goes to line the pockets of the solicitors. No, well, well I'm delighted to get the opportunity, well, Michael, just to, to respond to that. The reason why you know, the legal costs and expenses and the fees go up and up and up in these cases, okay, is because of this tactic. It's absolutely because of this tactic. So when, you know, whoever that person or persons may have made that accusation, I'd welcome the opportunity to discuss it with them on air, because that's not the case. The only reason why the costs and the duration of these things scale upward is because of this tactic. And again, I mean, they, I, I've addressed the point. It's not the order as a whole who are offering to mediate. It's one or two individuals 
who are strictly on their terms acting in their personal capacity only, which leaves victims of childhood sexual abuse with other legal problems if they do reach a settlement with those individuals who are acting in their personal capacity only. So I would like to ask that person, and indeed the order, why do you insist on acting in your personal capacity only? This story was actually covered in an ongoing case very well by Colin Keane in the Irish Times in July. So I'm not speaking out of turn. This was all... Um, discussed in open court and then the point was made you know, the claimants are willing to mediate they don't want to be going down years and years why would they? they they've suffered enough we are advocating for claimants we want a best possible result for them and as quickly as possible just as the lady is just tonight and we are firm believers of that that's what our office and Coleman Legal are doing we are absolutely representing our clients to the best of our possibility to get a quick fair resolution to all matters but it's not possible because of this tactic and it's not possible because of these offers to mediate in personal capacity only there's been so, um, so why are they doing that why is the order doing that mm-hmm. why will they not mediate as a whole because in our experience they're not offering to do that I can't answer that and I don't know of anybody who can answer it or who is willing to answer it probably more to the point Um, but there's another legal question I'd like uh, to ask you if I could because there's been an 11th hour intervention by the Chief Executive of Louth County Council who's used legal phrases such as ultra-virus and uh, mm. defamation and uncertainty about the Local <coughs> Government Act and as to whether the councillors can do this or whether there'll be ramifications if they do it and so on. Have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would certainly, Michael. I mean, I'm aware that there was a suggestion made that it maybe ultra vires to rescind the, the award to Brother Garvey. I'm not accusing Brother Garvey of have being in any way a perpetrator or having done anything wrong. It's very clear on that, okay? But um, to, to, to circulate that suggestion that, there, that it may be ultra vires, that's not right. That needs to be challenged and called out. It either is or it isn't. And to say that it may be, to, to councillors who perhaps don't have legal backgrounds, that might be just enough to say, oh, hold on here. It might put them off. It either it is or it isn't. And my understanding for the Local Government Act is it is a matter entirely within the remit of the Borough Council who award, they have the power to award it. And my understanding, therefore, is that they also have the power to rescind it. But I mean, for, for the CEO coming out and suggesting that it may be, I don't think that's right. She should be absolutely definitive. It either is or it isn't. And as I said, from my understanding, it's not ultra vires, which which means beyond the powers of the body to do something. Uh, Patrick J. Matthews, in uh, his letter to the Irish Independent, like others, seems to be suggesting uh, that Brother Edmund Garvey is blameless in all of this, that he's just one person and that the right thing to do would be to have the order to change their approach and drop this strategy rather than to embarrass uh, somebody who's spent a, a lifetime serving as a, a Christian brother. Have you any thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, well, I mean, this all comes down to a strategy that, you know, initiated in 2017 following the decision of the Supreme Court. My understanding is Brother Garvey was the head of the order when this strategy was adopted. So, you know, I mean, he, he can address that himself. Um, that, that's all I can really say on that. In relation to strategy, the strategy here is to try to 
frustrate, thwart and delay victims of child sexual abuse. That is what must be absolutely front centre of this entire discussion. Okay. These were children, they were abused. The perpetrators of these crimes, not all Christian brothers did, to, to make the note, a lot of Christian brothers did a lot of good, educated, you know, a poor working class Ireland. And they did a very good job, most of them did. But there's a handful of them who've admitted doing these things. They're sitting in prisons this morning, having admitted their crimes. And then these childhood victims of sexual abuse are then being, having to go through the ringer, essentially, Michael. Every legal obstacle is put in their way. And when it comes to talking about strategies, Mr. Matthew has dropped that strategy. Mm. And, and, and as I said already, they're still perfectly entitled to fully defend the claims they want. It doesn't stop them from doing that. Hmm. It's not the same as admitting liability. And I, standing with my clients as victims of child sexual abuse and then our office at Coleman Legal, we will continue and press the issue as much as we can. And it needs to stop. And I know Helen McEntee, Minister for Justice, has condemned it on the radio only on your show on Monday or Tuesday of this week. I know that um, various various different media outlets are following the story now, and it's you know you guys and thanks to your extremely in depth coverage, it, it's got that attention. Just drop the strategy. Just put victims first, and, and I think the public representatives, the, the ten councillors, have an opportunity here to stand with victims of child sexual abuse and to say drop the strategy and to look at the freedom issue on the basis that that strategy was adopted by, introduced by, and overseen by Brother Edmund Garvey. Philip, we have to leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once again today. Thank you very much, Michael. Take care. Thank you. Philip Tracy is a solicitor with Coleman Legal in Dublin. That's a firm that represents victims of childhood sexual abuse. Michael Reed on LMFM. I think the estimate is uh, that your petrol or diesel will cost you probably uh, about a tenner more if you fill up uh, the tank. Uh, let's talk uh, to Blake Boland, who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Uh, I suppose this was expected. Thanks for coming into us, Blake. Uh, I suppose this was uh, expected. But what's the reason for it? There's a lot of factors going on in the background here. And we did see prices being fairly stable during the summer. You know, petrol and diesel, the kind of June, July was in and around that 155, 160 marker there, thereabouts. And we've seen it creeping up an awful lot over the last few weeks. And that is one, well, for two different factors, two main things, let's say. So one is just that the price of the product itself seems to be going up a lot. And then also last night we had the reintroduction of the excise duty. So that was the seven cent on mm. petrol and the five cent on diesel. Why so, do we pay excise duty on fuel? Well, there's a great question for for the government and you actually pay quite a lot of it as mm. well. So when you look at the, the price of the petrol pumps, about half of that is various taxes and excise duties. And it's made up of a few different things. So excise duty is, is a very, very large portion of that tax. There's also two centiliter, which is for the, the NORA kind of mm. levy. That's the National Oil Reserve Agency. And then whatever price you get left with, you can add on your 23% VAT rate as well. And typically, you know, give or take, depending on how the prices are, that's about half of the price overall. Right, okay. So every time the price goes up, uh, it's good news really for the government. Yeah, their their mm. tax stake is quite substantial. And do we get anything in return for it? 
so it gets it's pulled like for the Nora mm. one for example that's yeah. two cent and that makes sure that we keep a 90 day reserve of oils in case of any international disruptions and we've kind of seen a lot of that as well over the last year you know citing mm. the Ukraine invasion there in particular but that would get pulled into our, our general taxes as well and then that's up to governments and, and the, the politicians that we vote in on, on how to spend that mm. and the politicians don't have to increase the excise duties. Yeah, so just to be clear on this, mm. it's not necessarily an increase. Now, I know mm. this is semantics and it's yeah. wording, of course, but if we remember back about a year ago, we saw mm. prices hitting pretty much €2.20 Euros 20 yeah. a litre. Mm. And the decision made at the time then was let's reduce the excise duty. Yeah. Now, if we go back a few months ago, they were talking about bringing back these excise duties, mm. restoring them. And we were quite vocal about calling on the government to look, do not do this in one tranche. This mm. is going to spook the markets. People are going to just race to petrol stations and it's too much of a hit. And thankfully, they did listen and they stalled that out over a number of months and did it in three tranches. So we, nice. we welcomed that. Mm. And last night saw the second of those three with okay. another one on mm. the 31st of October. So so that's not just the bad news. Uh, there's even worse news to come in October. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. So on the 31st of October, there's a further 8 cent on petrol and a further 6 cent on diesel. So that brings mm. it up to 15 cent on petrol and 11 cent on diesel mm. as the restoration of those duties. And that's about another tenner a tank, isn't it? So, it, yeah, obviously it'll depend on which car you drive and stuff. But, mm. but yeah, we're, we're looking at that kind of an, an, an increase. Mm. All right. And it's really going to hit people mm. hard at the moment. We are in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Yeah. We're seeing costs going up across the board mm. and this is going to hit not just you know you and I who might want to drive into work but we're looking at delivery drivers you know courier yeah. companies mm. but even the person that delivers your takeaway on a Saturday night is going to have to spend more on their fuel now God yeah you know, everybody is, yeah. is going to be hit yeah. by this maybe we'll keep that in mind uh, and tip them and tip them a little bit more for that matter because the cost uh, of them bringing it to you has gone up as you say uh, but if you take the three increases or the restoration of uh, the excise duties uh, overall for anybody who does any amount of driving uh, if you're on the road if you've long distances to travel I take it you're talking an extra 30, 50, 60 euro a, a week in terms of the cost of your fuel yeah, it really will add up. I mean, that's going to depend on how much the you know mm. how much the person drives. But even the national average in Ireland is about seventeen thousand kilometres. Yeah. But you know, you'll talk to taxi men who are doing fifty, sixty thousand kilometres in a mm. year. You know, maybe even more in some cases. So. Will taxi fares go up? Um, that would be a question for the Taxi Federation not us. Yeah. But, or but the, having the, said that the, the regulator are, but no doubt they'll make a case to the regulator who'll have to approve it because I mean you can't expect people to run at a, a loss and that would be across the board uh, the delivery man as you say who brings your bread to the shop surely the price of your bread and your peas and everything else will go up as a, yeah. a result You've hit the nail on the head there yeah. these kind mm. of costs that are been hitting businesses mm that eventually is going to be passed on to the, the consumer in some way, shape or form. Okay. Uh, I think the objective is, uh, at least in part, to save the planet. Will it work? So, yeah, this is, and this is an interesting one as well. It looked like last mm. night's one was, was kind of locked in. Yeah. The, the increase or the restoration that's coming on the 31st of October. Now, the government is probably going to find putting that off unpalatable. It doesn't seem to fit with, with their drive to, let's say, discourage people from using the car. But they are going to come under a serious amount of pressure over the, the next eight weeks mm. in advance of that to, to hold off on this excise you know, restoration. But also, if the markets keep rising, the product itself, apart from duties, that pressure might even increase because we've had Saudi Arabia mm. signalling that they're going to keep up that reduction in output of a million barrels a day of oil 
um, Russia are also talking about reducing supply. We're facing into a winter. What type of winter are we going to have? If it's very cold, people are going to put more demand on their heating, um, even on the cars themselves. You know, when you want to turn on the heating, you get into that in the morning. So there's a lot to play out mm. in the next two months. I saw a number of the papers uh, suggesting we could be paying two euro a litre very soon. It is possible. So, you know, we talked about mm. those the restorations there and that's 15 cents and, and 11 cent and you know, I drove from Drogheda here where we are up to Ballyshannon and Donegal back to Dublin and home to Drogheda yesterday so I passed an awful lot of petrol stations and I was seeing prices of petrol you know that kind of early to mid 170s mm. and in one case I saw a diesel in the high 170s 178 right. so even if the market doesn't change whatsoever that's that's about 1 euro 90 for mm. both petrol and diesel just there that's a very short hop to two euros. And was it justifiable to introduce the increase today on old stock? So a lot of garages will have stock. Now, mm. in some cases... I'm sure that, they have, yeah. especially when they've had months to prepare for it. Yeah. Uh, and why did the price go up overnight? Is that justifiable? So, well, the prices have been going up anyway. If you drove mm. around, you know, a week ago, those prices were a good few cents cheaper than they were yesterday before mm. that came on. Now, some of those garages might have a day or so of stock. Some of them might have up to two weeks of stock. Really mm. kind of depends on the garage. But those prices were increasing anyway. And we're going to see that excise being passed on to consumers possibly from today, but also over the next week as those stocks filter through. Okay, you've been warned. Uh, No good news on the horizon then. Unfortunately not there. Now, electricity prices do look like they're going to come down, so EV drivers are still a little bit frustrated at high prices, but we're starting to see signals, the likes of Penergy dropping their prices a little bit and it may ease the burden on EV drivers at least. So for some motorists out there, there's a little bit of good news. Okay, all right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, as I say, for coming in to us today and joining us on the programme. Blake Boland, Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Father Sean Healy has spent the last 50 years advocating for equality, fairness and justice. I've had the honour of interviewing Father Sean Healy for about half of that time. Today, together with his comrade in arms, Sister Bridget Reynolds, uh, he'll be retiring and Sean Healy joins us now. Good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for all those interviews down all the years. Yeah, <laughs> there were quite a few of them. Uh, Certainly were. Uh, 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 and I think there was always one theme uh, where uh, you were uh, fighting for those who do not have uh, and asking for those who have uh, to help with that situation. I don't know how many times I described you as a Robin Hood type of character. Oh, yeah, that's that's an accurate the description of it all. And part of the problem, I suppose, is that we're dealing with a world at the moment in which uh, decisions by government and things of that nature are redistributing the terrific, huge resources that are available. But unfortunately, the, the redistribution is from below to people higher up the, the chain. So like people on low and middle incomes are basically losing out uh, and what they're losing is actually going to the better off in society. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Uh, the, the situation has changed, I think, um, maybe about, you know, in the, in the early 80s, for example, in Ireland, there was a general, like there was a complete agreement. You know, we, part of our social contract was that um, everybody had a roof over their head, that everybody had at least a base, uh, enough income for a basic standard of living. And um, 
a number of other things of that nature. Today, that's not true. Uh, we have substantial homelessness, and it's growing. And we also have a situation where uh, the level of poverty is not really coming down, despite government's claims to the contrary. Um, we have that there seems to be an acceptance that having poverty of 10 or 12 percent, it seems to be okay. And I totally reject that because it is possible to eliminate poverty, despite, again, what the government might think that it's not. It is actually possible to do it. Okay. Uh, can I ask you um, where your values come from, do you think? Uh, is it from growing up uh, as a young boy in a, a working class uh, area in Cork? Um, I don't know, really. I, I've been asked that question a few times in recent weeks, and I, my, my kind of initial reaction is I don't know. Um, I think what happened was I came from a poor enough family. Like we, um, my, when I I was born, and I'm 77 years of age. My my I was my father was um, uh, sort of on part-time work for the first five years of my life from far from 1946 to 51. In 1951, uh, he got a full-time job driving a, a lorry uh, for CIE. Uh, and now like, he had driven trucks and lorries all his life. Uh, that, was, that was what he did for a living. And he did that up to the, the day he retired. Um, but uh, he, uh, he was involved in trade unions. Uh, he was the vice chair of his own branch. So I suppose there was something there though I mightn't have been that conscious of it at the time. Um, But I think where it really started to impinge on me was when I was in the seminary um, outside Newry there in Drummontine, outside Newry, um, from uh, 63 to 70. I became more conscious of the reality that not everybody had the same as other people and so on. And one of the things that we did in in that seminary was we set up a credit union, not because we had a lot of money to to save, but because we wanted to know how to run a credit union. And that certainly put me into touch with those kinds of things. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
and made me more conscious of, of mm-hmm. the fact that lots of people didn't have much, including ourselves. I mean, we were a family that had very little. Uh, I take and, it you thought you had very little until you saw other parts of the world because you were 22 when you left uh, the seminary and straight off to Nigeria. That's correct, yeah. Uh, now, just push that up to 23, but anyway, that's already okay. <laughs> no yeah. hassle on my, my, maths so always, went, my maths always fails me, as you very well know. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I yeah. went to Nigeria uh, just uh, yeah. that, uh, in, in, uh, and worked in the north of Nigeria for over 10 years. And like it was a completely different world. And it was both a, a different world at a church level, and it was a different world completely at a human, at a sort of a, a society level. Uh, like uh, to encapsulate the kind of world it was. When I was two years in Nigeria, that was 1972. I was the priest in charge of a parish, like I would be the effectively the parish priest as it would be known here. I was 26 years of age, um, and there were I was on my own the area was was 2000 square miles there were 47 churches in there now a lot of those churches would have been mud buildings rather than cement buildings you know um, and those now and I was on my own mm. in that space so like um you you learn an awful lot very quickly about that in in that situation and what's important and what's not, what's essential and what's not. And one of the things that struck me very forcefully in in that world was, despite the fact that almost nobody had a job, everybody worked, and everybody's work was respected, and everybody had a role, and that role was respected. And I, th- th- that would come home to me more when I came back to Ireland, and we had high, it was... Um, in the 80s and we had high unemployment and we had a whole lot of different situations like that and difficult situations and I, I would realize I came to realize that in Ireland and not just in Ireland but in the whole western world mm. we only respect work that is paid for we don't for example respect work that people do voluntarily for the most part for example all you have to do is look at how the society treats carers today carers of whether they're carers of children, carers of older people, carers of people with disabilities or mm. people who are ill, we treat them appallingly. And we expect them to do the, the work that they do, which is profound and, and challenging, and we expect them to do it for next to nothing. And certainly we don't pay anything remotely close yeah, to I what think, would be some kind of a living income for people in that space, yeah, which we should do. Yeah, well, I think uh, maybe the reason we're not going to have a, a referendum in November about the woman in the homes uh, role uh, is for that reason, uh, because uh, it uh, could prove uh, to be an unconstitutional situation if we recognise care in the home. Can I bring you back to the 90s? Uh, because uh, after Nigeria, you went to America for some time and then you came back uh, and set up what was Corite which then merged into Social Justice Ireland, which the organisation is called today. Uh, But that really was the beginning of of your work here. Uh, And it was at the time when uh, the Celtic Tiger was roaring, the country was awash with money. Uh, We became uh, very... 
shallow I- in many ways uh, and we'd uh, our minds on money a finance minister at the time Charlie McCreevy putting more money into our pockets because he had it and then there was a lot of criticism about that and Bertie Ahern the Taoiseach uh, turned around one day and said he was a socialist everybody laughed uh, so he tried to prove it and he brought you to Inchy Donner didn't he? <laughs> That's that's absolutely true. That's a very uh, tight uh, part of history. I I, I came back. I, I joined CORI or CMRS as it was at the time in 1983, and Sister Bridget Reynolds was there already. And they had they had started this, as you said, they, they had started this justice office, and there was a Jesuit there as well, Father Bill McKenna the three of us, and we were kind of, they, they'd never done this before, and they gave us a fairly clear run of it. And what we began to develop was this uh, sort of engagement with government and critique of society and coming up with different ideas. Now, in 94, uh, the government of the day, Fianna Fáil, uh, they were, they had been, um, they had uh, done badly in local elections. They lost uh, two by-elections on the, that day, the day, the same day as the local elections, and they weren't in the best of uh, shape. And they asked me to go and talk to them. And I went to I went to Inchidani. I went there because I was asked. I, like of all the political, we have dealt with every political party in Leinster House on many occasions. And if they ask us to do a presentation or give them ideas or advice or whatever, we never say no, no matter who the the, the uh, the political party is and we went because I, I went there to Inchidani because I was asked to go there and I, what I did was I said to them if you're serious about social inclusion if you're serious about tackling poverty here are five things that you should do in your last three years in office and the first item was to increase welfare with payments, core welfare payments substantially. I, uh, they had made a commitment back in 2002. I said, if you want to honor that, you need to increase welfare over the next three budgets by 51 euro a week. And I, I said, you, how you do it? You raise it by 14 euro in the first year, 17 euro in the second year, 20 euro a week in the third year gives you 51 you get you get to your destination destination and that was achieved in 2007 and the point was that it was it, it was anchoring um, or benchmarking if you like the core social welfare rate uh, uh, linking it to gross average industrial earnings mm. and that's the kind of issue that uh, and that was that was a huge achievement mm. and it meant an increase in the money that was going to the poorest in society of about two billion a year mm. and that was serious money that was actually uh, dealt you know um, av- made available at that time the problem was that subsequent governments slipped away from it and didn't honor it and here we are again um, uh, decades later trying to get a similar commitment from the current government to benchmark welfare at um, 30% of average industrial earnings. Mm-hmm. And that basically would set a benchmark and an index and so on. And it would take that increase of welfare and the whole thing about that we get every budget to take it out of the political process completely. Why? Because there'd be an automatic acceptance. We should honour this commitment at 30% of average industrial earnings. That can be afforded 
it, it doesn't put a huge amount of money into people's pockets, but it at least gives them the basics that they can tackle the cost of living and so on. Okay, when you said 2007, I was thinking, did he not say that last week? <laughs> because, <laughs> Probably uh, true. Because you said something similar last week. I was reading your article in the Irish Times uh, about oh, yeah. how the gap between the rich and the poor has widened since the last budget. Uh, and true. although you're retiring from Social Justice Ireland today, uh, I know that you're going to continue making your views known and campaigning on behalf of the less well-off. I hope that uh, we get the opportunity of talking to you again uh, in that time, Sean. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you as the Director of Social Justice Ireland over all of these years. Uh, Good luck in your retirement. I hope you do get a bit of a rest as well. Well, I I will take a bit of a rest at the beginning in in the next few weeks, but I'd be more than glad to share my views at any, any time. And it's always been a pleasure dealing with you, Michael. I'm really, really grateful for all those opportunities that you gave us uh, to articulate our point of view down the years. All right, Sean. Well, happy retirement. Uh, Thank you so much. uh, Although that may fall on deaf ears, and I know that. But uh, thank you indeed uh, for all those years, all those interviews, uh, and we look forward uh, to the next phase. And thanks for joining us today. That's Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Too often in uh, the past, politicians uh, turned a deaf ear to survivors' complaints, only then to jump on the bandwagon when those abused people were proven to be the truth tellers at state inquiries. On September 4th, Monday next week, Drogheda politicians will have their chance to stop the meaningless hand-wringing and dangerous hand-washing and instead to do what anyone with an ounce of compassion knows is the right thing by passing the motion to rescind Garvey's Freedom of the Town. That's according to Justine McCarthy, who's a columnist with the Irish Times and on the line with us. Good morning, Justine. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, maybe you'd Good begin morning. by uh, explaining why you wrote that, if you would. Well, you're partly the reason, Michael. Um, your consistent coverage of these events has been really admirable and has brought it to the attention of a lot of people who wouldn't have realised what was going on. Um, I just think that it's downright unchristian of the Christian brothers to be doing to the survivors of, abu- of child sexual abuse what they are doing by adopting this litigation strategy of, I suppose it's, you know, a a game of chicken that they seem to be playing with people who have been through horrendous experiences as children. Uh, Because of this Supreme Court decision a few years ago that unincorporated bodies such as um, religious congregations can't be sued as an entity and will have to nominate an individual to be sued. Now the Christian brothers are refusing to do that and have been refusing for quite some time since Brother Garvey was the European head. And that means that survivors not only have to uh, sue each uh, living member of the order, but they've actually had to go to the High Court to get orders compelling the Christian Brothers to provide the information about who are its members and where they are, because they've refused to do that voluntarily. It just seems merciless to me. 
Do you feel angry about that? Because you wrote that it's time for people to become angry. I do feel angry because I think there's a, a, a very strong streak of hypocrisy in all of this. First of all, you know, this is a congregation that calls itself Christian. To me, this is the antithesis of Christianity, which is supposed to be about love, love your neighbour. I'm also angry because the Christian brothers and Brother Garvey himself have encouraged adult survivors of abuse to go to the courts with their claims. And they have promised in the past that they would deal with any claims in a merciful way. And now they're doing the total opposite. Um, You uh, spoke about Pontius Pilate in one of your articles as well and how Pontius Pilate uh, listened to people before he came to making his own decision and deciding Mm. to crucify Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you'd explain the context of that article to our listeners. Well, I do feel that down through the decades now of revelations about child abuse, I, I'm aware of individual survivors who went to politicians initially and got nowhere. Um, and many of them ended up going to journalists to try and get their stories told. But then once those stories were corroborated and those people were officially believed by state inquiries, you had all this hand-wringing going on in the door and talk of, you know, erecting memorials to people and providing counselling and though the politicians couldn't do enough. But they are still waiting and leaving it to the survivors to fight their causes privately and in this case I don't see most of them doing anything to help them. I know there is the motion to rescind Brother Garvey's honorary member honorary freedom of Drogheda went before Lowell's County Council in July and that council passed the book to Drogheda and only one of the Drogheda councillors, of ten, as far as I know, has actually expressed his point of view. Um, I'm terribly sorry, his name is just... Paddy McQuillan. Yeah, Paddy, Paddy McQuillan. Yeah. yeah. yeah pa- Paddy pa- McQuillan said that, uh, at that Loud County Council meeting that he will vote to rescind it. Uh, and since then, he said he's nothing more to add. Uh, it's interesting uh, in terms of who has said what, because it's very hard to call uh, at this moment uh, two of the three Labour Party councillors in the Drogheda area have said they'll vote to rescind it. That's Emma Cutlip and Michelle Hall. The two Sinn Féin councillors in the area have said they'll vote to rescind it. That's Joanna Byrne and Tom Cunningham. Uh, and with Paddy McQuillan, that makes five out of the ten. Uh, so you're down to the wire. Um, we have another Labour councillor, P.O. Smith, who has said he will vote against it and has told us uh, that since he said that, he's nothing further to add. And then we have four councillors who've said no comment, which I, I can't stress or or say it often enough how remarkable I find this position that the councillors are taking, that they won't make any comment whatsoever. But they are Eileen Tully of Fine Gael, um, who is the mayor, 
Um, James Byrne of Fianna Fáil, no comment. Kevin Callan, independent, no comment. And Declan Power, independent, no comment. Uh, so uh, as things stand, it looks like five will vote to rescind and quite possibly five against. That would leave the casting vote to the mayor, who is Eileen Tully, who when I called her, you remember, Colm Keita spoke to her in the Irish Times in your paper and she said the vote should be taken in secret. <laughs> she didn't want Brother Edmund Garvey to be flogged in public and all that stuff. I, I spoke to her the other day uh, and when I introduced myself, because it was the first time I had ever spoken to her, she said, uh, is this about the freedom of Drogheda? No comment, no comment, no comment. Last time I spoke about that, I was skint. Bye. So I can't and give you any more information reason. about that. Oh, she, she, Michael, she, she, hung, she, she, she hung up then. Yeah. And the reason she has given for calling for uh, a because Because vote. of Colm Keita's article in the Irish Times, I imagine, I don't know, because the conversation was as long or as short as I've just outlined to you, uh, um, but <laughs> I presume it was because she said that the vote should be taken in secret. Damien, of course, uh, rightly so, has said that uh, secrecy is the one thing that enables child abuse. Exactly, yeah. I I did read, uh, I think it was Colin Keenan's story, he said that she wanted the secret vote because the last time it came up at the, the council, uh, there was hell. Well, whatever about any discomfort that politicians feel, it is absolutely nothing to the torment and the anguish that these men endured when they were children. And politicians are elected to represent the people. Damien has been asking the people... Damien has been asking the people to contact the councillors. Uh, And if anybody Googles Louth County Council membership, uh, you'll see the members their telephone numbers and their email addresses. Uh, is that the right thing to do? To to, to contact them if uh, as of they course that's what, that's what that's what politicians are supposed to do. They're representing the people, and they need to know what the people's opinions are on this. Because, as far as I know, some of the politicians haven't sat down and listened to any of the survivors. You Which p- is just incredible. Justine, as a journalist, you've been covering stories of child sexual abuse going right back to the 90s uh, when we became aware of the extent of institutional child sexual abuse. Uh, the Christian Brothers, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think they've been singled out as being one of the worst organisations for victims to deal with. Have you ever seen any organisation in this country treat victims the way they are now uh, treating them by obstructing their right to justice honestly no I I can't recall any other but uh, as you say this has been going on for years the Christian brothers have had a very aggressive uh, litigation approach right from the start um, I, for instance, dealt with uh, a lovely man in Cork who was uh, sexually abused by a Christian brother in his school. Um, the brother was convicted of that abuse in the criminal courts. When it came to that man's sentencing, his victim went into court and pleaded for leniency 
for his assailant because he felt that he might have a better chance um, of, I suppose, learning from his mistakes, freedom. After that, 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 that man did get a suspended sentence. After that, the Christian brothers fought the survivors' uh, claim for compensation for years and years and put up every obstacle um, so that the man's health actually was damaged by it. The first time I, I just I... don't see how these people can believe that they are living the lives that Jesus Christ uh, expected them to lead. The first time I spoke to Damien O'Farrell, he said, I'm not a survivor, I'm a, a victim. I prefer to describe myself as a, a victim than a survivor because I was a victim of child sexual abuse. He said, actually, he prefers to describe him himself as somebody who experienced child sexual abuse. Uh, but you would hope that Damien and anybody else uh, who's been through that would find some sort of healing or closure or whatever word you want to put on it. Uh, does this obstruction to gaining redress impact on that and do you believe that it's causing further pain, sorrow and abuse? It, inevitably it's causing further pain and um, knock on uh, consequences for families of these people as well. The biggest effect, and the, the most deleterious effect of child sexual abuse is the psychological effect, the sense of guilt, the sense that, oh, I must have been doing something to have attracted attention. These are the the issues that are planted in children's minds, and it takes a huge amount of counselling um, in many cases for them to come to terms with that, to now find themselves being fought tooth and nail through the law courts by the very people who were supposed to have educated them to be Christian men. That has to be causing them psychological setbacks. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Okay. I see Damien texting saying that from day one last October, Councillor Maeve Bure has stood with and supported victims. She gave us empathy and hope. Maybe or won't have a vote on Monday. Uh, there's 10 councillors uh, have gone through the list there and uh, the positions as we know them at uh, this stage. Uh, Justine, uh, maybe you'd like to conclude, given how you feel uh, and the way that you feel that they should rescind uh, the freedom honour by speaking to the councillors. Well, I would just say, for God's sake, do the right thing by these men. Stop. Stop their suffering and vote to rescind the freedom. I've seen politicians saying, well, what difference would it make if we rescinded it? It would make a a very strong statement and send a message to the Christian brothers that not just we as politicians, but the people we represent, the people of this constituency, the people of this country, abhor what you are doing to these people and stop it. 
Always a pleasure to talk to you, Justine. Thank you for joining us today. Justine McCarthy, columnist with The Irish Times. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Jackie Taff uh, was in touch with us uh, yesterday. She's been a, a great supporter of uh, Damien and uh, the other victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian brothers looking to rescind the freedom of uh, Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey. Uh, and she asked me yesterday to read out a, a text that she had sent to the Mayor, Eileen Tully. Uh, I didn't actually see it, Jackie. My apologies. Uh, we've been so in undated but so many calls uh, I think it probably speaks to the depth of feeling uh, but I have it here now uh, and um, Jackie wrote to Mayor Tully saying I don't have a position on this because sadly I was sexually assaulted as a 15 year old child so I can't change that because that abuse happened to me without my consent however I had hoped that you would have given me a few minutes of your time so that you could have gained a sense of understanding of what it is like to stand in my shoes. It might have assisted you when it's come to making a decision. I believe this decision should be a matter of conscience for each individual. I ask that you please reflect and think about all those children, now adults, who were abused and are presently obstructed from accessing justice by the legal strategy adopted by Brother Edmund Garvey. Ask yourself, in all conscience, is it right to leave such an honour as the freedom of Drogheda to an individual who who has done that and I am always here if you want to talk again uh, she said thanks uh, Jackie uh, as I say apologies for the delay in bringing that to you um, we've an email that has come to us uh, from Bernadette Sullivan uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of people listening to us uh, this morning particularly people in Drogheda who have suffered sexual abuse will know who Bernadette Sullivan is she was the whistleblower in uh, the Michael Shine Uh, case uh, and went on to found um, Dignity for Patients. It's a long letter but I'll read it for you if you don't mind. Uh, She says Dear Michael, as founder of Dignity for Patients, I was profoundly shocked to learn that uh, the then chairperson of uh, Dignity for Patients, Mr Paul Murphy, had written to Louth County Council members requesting them not to vote in favour of rescinding the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey. The request to rescind this honour from former Christian Brother leader Brother Garvey was made on behalf of child victims of Christian Brother other sexual abuse. All clients of Dignity for Patients are victims of child and adult medical sexual abuse. The profession of the abuser may differ, but the impact is the same. Some people may have suffered abuse by both Christian brothers and doctors. I do not think that Paul Murphy understood how his request to counsellors could impact the victims of sexual abuse. His concern for victims is stated in his email, but his ill-considered request shows a marked lapse in judgment in my opinion as founder of Dignity for Patients I find it very regrettable that Dignity for Patients was brought into this issue in this manner. It does not reflect the long established victim centric ethos of Dignity for Patients and the relentless work to sustain this ethos in our engagement with clients and ethos I am confident continues to this day. I trust the strong and prompt response of the Board of Management and CEO on behalf of Dignity for Patient clients and staff will go some way to reassure all affected. I have to say, Bernadette, I, I think everybody uh, feels reassured because their response was so strong. Going back to Bernadette's letter, she says, justice for sexual abuse victims is a very important part of their recovery. There is acknowledgement the abuse happened. The trauma and suffering of the victim is recognised and civil justice can provide some restitution for the suffering cause. 
it is unjust to put in place any strategy that would obstruct, deny or frustrate victims' access to civil justice. Paul Murphy said in his opinion, Brother Garvey is a blameless person. This comment has caused a lot of upset to the affected victims. Brother Garvey was the leader of the Christian Brothers Order when it adopted a legal strategy that makes it very difficult for some claimants to advance their civil justice cases. This is causing victims immense distress. Is this blameless? The focus on Brother Garvey because he led the Christian Brothers when this legislation was introduced. He is from Drogheda and is bestowed with the freedom of Drogheda. Reference was made to the deep respect in which Brother Garvey's family is held in Drogheda. I too hold that respect for the Garvey family. I was a, a very proud, it was a very proud moment for Drogheda and its people when Brother Garvey was appointed head of the Christian Brothers and I, I recall that sense of pride. He was then awarded the freedom of Drogheda in 1997. I now feel very let down and betrayed to learn that under our honoured citizens' leadership this obstructive legal strategy was introduced. It is very regrettable that actions Brother Garvey took as leader of the Christian Brothers subsequent to being awarded the freedom of Drogheda in 1997 have forced victims to request this honour to be removed from him and deciding if Brother Garvey is worthy of retaining the freedom of Drada, perhaps we should ask ourselves these questions. Was Brother Garvey, as leader of the Christian Brothers, responsible for all decisions taken under his leadership, including the legal strategy? Was he aware of the difficulties and distress these strategies caused to victims? What action did he take to review or change these strategies when he realised this was happening to victims? Did he show compassion and kindness in his actions towards victims seeking legal redress? Before he retired, was he aware of the stress being caused to this group of victims? What did he do about it as as leader of the Christian organisation. Has the legal strategy he introduced helped all victims of Christian Brothers abuse obtain civil justice? Has the legal strategy he adopted on behalf of the Christian Brothers added significantly to the distress of victims and delayed their recovery? Victims are now appealing to Loud County councillors to remove the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Garvey. This would send a very strong and clear message to the Christian Brothers and its leaders that the people of Drogheda do not approve of making sexual abuse victims suffer in this way. Removal of the freedom of a city has happened in the past when the honoured person acts or is complicit in practices which are in conflict with the integrity of the award bestowed. According to reports, horrific abuse, including rape and physical torture, were perpetrated on these men as children by members of the Christian Brothers. These men are trying to seek civil justice as part of their recovery. The Christian Brothers are putting legal obstacles in their way. Brother Garvey oversaw the implementation of this legal strategy in his professional role as leader of the Christian Brothers. With the recent highlighting of the victim's distress, surely the Christian Brothers should change this legal approach, which seems neither Christian or brotherly to these vulnerable men. I, as one Drogheda citizen, do not want any person to hold such a prestigious award in my name if they engage in any decisions or activities which prolongs or compounds the suffering of victims. As I say, that's an email that's come to us from Bernadette Sullivan, the founder of Dignity for Patients. Thank you, Bernadette. Uh, another email um, that's come to us uh, from somebody who doesn't want to be named says, I'm sure many of uh, the victims of rogue Christian brothers are in their middle age or older. Maybe their spokesperson would highlight that. Uh, yeah, I think Damien has said that most of the men are in their middle 50s, middle aged men at this uh, stage. The abuse would have happened predominantly, I think, in the 70s. 
when they were primary school children. Uh, back to the email. In other words, victims have carried this mental anguish arising from their experience for decades. It's disgraceful that all 10 councillors can't make a unanimous, transparent decision to rescind. While Brother Garvey is not one of the perpetrators, if he saw, oversaw the introduction of the brother's current strategy, he has added to the victim's pain and suffering. Thank you indeed. Uh, Brian, uh, who's asked us to withhold his second name. Uh, another email, again, from somebody who's asked us to withhold their name. Um, they say, I'm a regular listener to your programme and a victim survivor of sexual abuse by the Christian Brothers. I find certain people's reactions to this issue, stroke story, to be very odd. Paul Murphy's email, a man who has worked in the area of helping people who have been sexually abused, takes it upon himself to write to councillors in a personal capacity to say that Brother Garvey, the person responsible for implementing the Christian Brothers' legal strategy, is blameless. How can Brother Garvey be blameless when he's responsible? And why did Murphy write the email in the first place? It seems to be to have been a very odd thing to do. The term blame is very old-fashioned. It's a word that was very commonly used by the Christian brothers back in the day. Also, that several councillors can only say no comment in relation to this issue, to my mind, is again very odd. Uh, I wonder if we are seeing the influence and the reach of the Christian brothers at work. Thank you indeed. Uh, one more comment uh, for the moment uh, from BJ in Dundalk who's texted saying uh, he wanted to comment on the Christian brothers saga because he says it's splitting the town of Drogheda. The, town the 10 councillors should think good and hard about this issue over the weekend. Think about the brutality and the sexual abuse we school kids suffered at the hands of the Christian brothers. How many victims got married and abused their partner and children or um, something else. It, it should be left to the 10 councillors to decide. The CEO of Loud County Council uh, should not have a say in this. Joan Martin should not be intervening. If I was a councillor in Drogheda, I would rescind the freedom of the town. These councillors who won't express their opinion and those that are on various other groups and blocking them about speaking about it, shame on them. You just can't gag the voters in the local elections when some of the hypocritical councillors might not get back in. Thank you, BJ. Uh, we'll be back with more in a moment. Michael Reed on LMFM. I can honestly tell you that we've never received as many emails as we're receiving about a single issue as we're getting this time in relation to the brother Edmund Garvey, freedom of Drogheda civic honour and as to where whether it should be rescinded or not on Monday. Um, we'd uh, David Kearney, just one more for the moment, he says uh, he's writing to the councillors actually, he says, Dear councillors, it's beyond disgusting and reprehensible that any councillor should stand in the way of rescinding this award. The names of Eileen Tully and James Byrne and Kevin Callan and Declan Power that vote against this and refuse to comment that will always be trash in David's mind and he says they'll always be remembered for siding with an organisation uh, that was home to child abusers. Hopefully all of those who vote against rescinding this will be removed from any and all roles in public representation for all time. Thank you indeed. Let's uh, turn our attention to something else 
altogether different because contraception is to be made free today to women aged between 27 and 30. We're joined now by Finnefall TD for Cabin Monaghan, Neve Smith. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. This is a, a monumental day, isn't it? It is and good morning, Michael, to you and your listeners. It is a truly momentous day in terms of women's health care. Um, I know as your um, introduction there, you said that the, introduc- the free contraception scheme was going to be extended from 25 to 30, but it's important to say that this scheme has been in place since 2022 for women aged 17 to 25. So you're going to see an expansion of that as of today, where you're going to have women from 17 to the ages of 30 can all be included now in the national free contraceptive scheme. And what does that mean? Uh, I mean, obviously contraception is free, but is that all forms of contraception? Yes, it is. And um, as we know, there are many different types of contraception options when it comes to um, family planning. You have uh, pills, hatch, you have rings. You also have the long-acting reversible contraceptions too. Those formats can be um, big, well, they can be, I suppose, more inv- invasive uh, procedures and the fitting removal and injections and checkups for all of those are now free of charge under this scheme. So it is a, a monumental day. It is, I suppose, a demonstration of uh, both Minister Donnelly and Fianna Fáil's commitment to women's health care. You know, there are, are a few female uh, Fianna mm. Fáil TDs there and we're always on to Minister Donnelly's case to ensure that that, along with other schemes, are introduced because for a long, long time it, it was kind of the Cinderella um, of healthcare as mm. regards women's healthcare because you have seen not just this scheme today but you have seen, seen schemes before this where the Minister also announced see and treat schemes and that was really to address the issue of menopause which for many, many years has been a taboo subject but um, as I understand it there are six clinics open um, nationwide for women mm. um, and I think that has been really welcomed because that's I suppose catering for our women beyond 30 and, and looking forward into their later years which can be really really difficult for women mm. and as I said up to now wasn't discussed wasn't yeah. considered wasn't mm. thought about yeah. either in medical care or the workplace and a huge problem huge problem for half the population uh, but uh, thankfully we're improving on that we're improving obviously on on contraception or helping with uh, the cost of it because it's free uh, I suppose uh, to women of an age where they'd uh, be sexually active uh, and would find uh, at times it's very very expensive uh, sometimes prohibitive Uh, so if it's free uh, do you hope that people will use contraception uh, and that that will lead to a decrease in uh, crisis pregnancies and STIs Absolutely. I mean, that's what it's geared towards is, is protecting and helping. And uh, we all acknowledge there is a cost of living crisis out there. That's a very real thing. And of course, women will tend to put themselves last when they have priorities of children, <clears throat> partners, work and all of that. And this, of course, makes it accessible, free. And it's a cost effective measure that does try to address the things you've talked about, supporting sexual health, reducing crisis pregnancies and termination pregnancy rates as well. Um, glad to say and see that from the numbers I've received from the Minister, we have over 2,500 GPs and almost 2,000 pharmacies have signed up to provide the service and the products. And I think that will be, um, you know, women will obviously need to contact their own GP and their own pharmacy to see that they are um, signed up to the scheme. But I would say that um, all GPs across the country will try to um, 
assist and facilitate women who want to participate in the scheme. I think it's 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 really good news and as I said demonstrates the government's commitment to trying to address not just women's health care but also the cost of living crisis. It's upon us at the moment as well, Michael. Okay, thank you very much indeed uh, for that and for joining us uh, today. Neve Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan. Now Tom usually texts the programme. Uh, he, he, he's just got around to it. He says, sorry I've not been texting you today, but I've been very busy letting my local councillors know how I feel about them. Thanks, Tom. That's the final word for today, for this week. Maggie McGuire Research, Paul McKenna was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.